the Lord. Recently, I was listening to a podcast by Dr. Jason K. Allen on the book of James, and coincidentally enough, I was at Broadwood Presbyterian this past Sunday night, and I got into a discussion with Ike Reeder. Ike Reeder is the son of their pastor, um, Dr. Harry Reeder. And as we engaged in that discussion, although it was short, it was quite impactful. Um, just in case you don't know, that's actually all preachers talk about when we get together. We don't actually talk about anything else but the word of God. Believe that if you want to. But in that conversation, we discussed how the style and structure of the book of James likens itself to the book of Proverbs. It's actually quite similar. Um, uh, many theologians call it the New Testament version of Proverbs. James, as we have seen, gives us all the applicable spiritual principles by which we should guide our lives. While James had the authority in the church to make many of these principles commands, you will see that in his writing, he often proposes them as rhetorical questions. He does so in a, in a way to get the, writer, the reader to think about what he is actually saying causes them to evaluate themselves. Now, he transitioned from taming the tongue, but it still kind of focuses in in the same umbrella. After he finished writing on taming the tongue, he moved to wisdom. Even though he transitioned, he remained true to the dynamics of Old Testament wisdom literature by saying that there are two types of wisdom. There are two types of wisdom. There is wisdom that comes from God, and there is wisdom that comes inevitably from Satan. In other words, there is true wisdom, and there is false wisdom. Before we begin, allow me to do my best to attempt to define for you cogently what wisdom is as it is described and mentioned in the Bible. Wisdom is the God-given application of spiritual knowledge in situations in life by which you have not experienced and goes beyond your moral code. I give that again. Wisdom is the God-given application of spiritual knowledge in situations in life by which you have not experienced and goes beyond our moral code. What do I mean by that? Wisdom, one, can only come from God. And it is not simply based on your intellectual acumen, but it must be the spiritual impartation, not just of knowledge, but the ability to apply that knowledge in various situations. That's what wisdom is. Let me break it down. If you are able to make a spiritual decision about an event that you do not have prior knowledge of, and if there is no general or direct mention of your specific event in the Bible, then it requires wisdom. See, many of us are often able to, based on experience, based on our knowledge, to not only live through an event or get through an event, but to even predict an event like the weather or even earthquakes or tsunamis. We can predict those things based off of knowledge and even how we respond to those things 
is based off the prior knowledge we have of that experience. But wisdom is when you do not have the equipment to predict, to give you the proper information to get through the situation or event. If there is no prior experience and no intellectual knowledge required, then that situation requires wisdom. Before we jump into our text in James, allow me to show you in scripture an example of what true wisdom looks like from Solomon. Jump with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 3, verse 16. That is, if you have your Bible. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. And we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me. While your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I arose in the morning to nurse the child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord. Give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Now, many of us in this room have heard this story before, but I bet you not many of us actually knew that this scripture came from the Bible. The situation perfectly suits our definition for wisdom. Here we have two women who have presented a situation to Solomon by which there is no point of reference. There is no prior reference that Solomon can revert to to be able to navigate through this situation. This was a specific and unique event that would have required going just beyond our moral understanding of right versus wrong. Now you say, well, what do you mean by that? Clearly it was wrong for the woman to steal the child of the woman whose child was alive. That's wrong. But it wasn't wrong for her to feel the guilt that she felt, to feel the feeling of lostness that she felt. 
And so what you have to see is when Solomon is presented these two women, he is having to navigate loss versus loss. Does that make sense? See, one woman lost her child because he was stolen. And one woman lost her child because he was dead. And in our moral, regular moral code, right versus wrong doesn't simply apply because he just sees hurt. And he has to figure out, only through God-given wisdom, whose hurt has driven them to steal another child. Now, because of the wisdom he received from God, instead of just badgering them and asking them the right questions, he presents a scenario where the person who is telling the truth, their heart shines out. See, that is only wisdom that can come from God. Both of them are suffering loss, so he, in his own strength, cannot simply discern who's telling the truth. He must rely on God-giving wisdom. See, a truly wise man knows that they lack the ability to make spiritual decisions necessary in life apart from God. And that's point number one today. True wisdom comes only from God. It only comes from God. Let's look back at James. James chapter 1 first, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Notice that there is an emphasis on true wisdom because there is a false wisdom. God is the source of all truth and wisdom. And if we believe that, then everything else that we see that is seen as wisdom comes in contrast to God. That means that it can only be produced by Satan himself. Now, you may think that James is making a hard turn from taming the tongue, but it's a soft turn. Let me tell you why. All false teaching comes as a result of the wisdom of man and man's own philosophy of life. Every false religion is the result of some individual man's wisdom. Mormonism is the direct result of the vision and the revelation that Joseph Smith claimed he received specifically from God that only he could hear and he could explain. Or maybe you look at Islam where Muhammad sits on this rock which is now known as Mecca and he receives this revelation, this wisdom that is according to his own ability and not God's. Even today, there are preachers, and they are everywhere, who are presenting contemporary challenges to what has long stood as truth in the word of God and in the eyes of God. If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the corollary must be true. So is his word. Which means that there can be no new revelation from God. There is no new man-made wisdom that I can present to you that's not already found in the book. It must come out of the book because the book is the source of all truth and knowledge and wisdom. 
What do I mean by that? In the context of the Bible, we lead our lives. That's called presuppositionalism. It's a big word. But what it means is that I presuppose that the Bible defines all truth in life. I don't look outside of the Bible for it to be validated. I look into the Bible for it to validate what's going on around me. That is the source of wisdom. And so if a tree is green, I don't look at the tree and look for it in the Bible. I look at the Bible and I look at the tree. Because the Bible defines all knowledge and wisdom for us. Just last week, I came across an interview, thanks Alicia, with a man professing to be a Christian pastor who was admittedly homosexual. And in that interview, he said, these were his words, God can be whatever you need God to be. And you know what he said? He said he felt that. He said he felt that God can be to you whatever you need him to be. See, that's the source of all man-made wisdom. It's based on what I feel. God should be and can be in my life to make what I already feel deep down in sin, deep down in my sin. Okay. He said that God could even be a black, a big black woman if you needed him to be that. Those were his words. See, Whenever people say that I feel this and they are making an appeal to their own understanding and their own sensuality. See, that's called escapism. In order for me to escape the guilt of my sin, all I need to do is feel that God in some kind of way is approving the life that I live. And so all I need to do is feel the truth, but not know the truth. How about this? Have you ever heard someone who does not believe in God say something like this? I just can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Have you ever heard that? And it's usually a difficult question. And so even if those people claim to become Christians, oftentimes you will see them try to fit God around their personal philosophy. See, with man's wisdom, it doesn't make sense that God would send anyone to hell. That's in my wisdom. In Brandon's wisdom, as much as I may dislike a person or even hate a person, I can never reason sending that person to hell for eternity. That's according to man's wisdom. But... If God claims to be as caring and as loving as he is, then he wouldn't send anyone to hell, right? That's according to man's wisdom. That is a false belief in God. And you may not know this, but there are many confessing Christian pastors who are professing this truth. And it's called universalism. What is universalism? Universalism is the idea that inevitably... Everyone will be saved. Inevitably, everyone will make it into heaven. Inevitably, no one is really bad enough to go to hell. 
See, they believe in something called the blank slate, which is promulgated by Rousseau, which says we are not born evil, despite what the Bible says. We are born neutral. And it's the world that corrupts us. And God knows that the world is corrupting us. So he's going to put us in heaven regardless of how we live here on earth. There are many pastors that teach this. And so universalists claim, I just can't believe God was sending us to hell. But you know what they're really saying? I can't believe God would send me to hell. That's what they're really saying. But see, the truth is, they don't think that they're actually better than they are. They know they're quite worse. And the only way that they can escape the wrath of God is that everybody escapes the wrath of God. You see how that works? See, I can escape because I, I'm not really, you know, I know I'm not great, God, but hell, come on. I don't deserve hell. But if I don't deserve hell, the corollary is that nobody else does either. It's being promulgated in many churches. But see, what people fail to understand in their own wisdom, this is what they see. This is what they understand. This is how they perceive. They say that wrath is the opposite of God's love. It is in opposition to his love. But the opposite of love is not wrath, is hate. So God doesn't hate you, but he does hate what you do, which is in opposition to him, which is sin. Sin is in complete opposition to who God is, and only God is capable of hating the thing without hating the person. Wrath is not the opposite of love. It's the product of love. It is the product of love. See, if I see my child in a specifically dangerous situation, whether they're strung out on drugs, whether they're just putting themselves in really bad situations, my natural desire is to do something that will shock them back into reality. Not because I hate them, but because I love them. And I will chastise them. I will whoop them. I will punish them. Not to kill them, but to draw them back in to right fellowship and relationship with myself. That is the same thing that God does. And so, let me give you heavenly wisdom. Without the wrath of God, we can't experience the love of God. And God knew this. Which is why he took his son, placed the wrath that was intended for all of us, placed it on his back, and then said, for God so loved the world. You see how that works. It is perfectly balanced. You can't have all of God's love without the full expression of God's wrath. And the full expression of his wrath is that if you live apart from him, there is eternal damnation awaiting you. That's the truth of the word. That's why Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God doesn't send us his wrath because he hates us. He sends us his wrath because he loves us. And his wrath is the product of his love. Wrath is to bring reproof and correction. That is the wisdom of God, but it's not the wisdom of the world. 
And so there are going to be many people who scoff at the idea of God and doubters who are going to present this to you and say, well, if God is so loving, then why does he send you to hell? And your response to be because he loves me enough to keep me out of hell. First Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to, uh, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which, by the way, is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is such a comprehensive text about wisdom from God in contrast to the wisdom of man. Paul says that the word of the cross, just the word of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. It is silliness. It is foolishness. He's saying that the total representation of the cross, which is the gospel, makes no sense to people who don't believe. In fact, the word that he uses for folly there is the same root of the word moron. It is moronicism for the person who does not believe in the cross and the testimony of the cross. People who have their own philosophical belief about God believe that a man dying on the cross and resurrecting is foolish. They claim it is unproven, false, and made up. But they will likewise subject themselves to all sorts of unproven scientific hypotheses. Which just in case you don't know, hypothesis means an educated guess. You realize that the Big Bang Theory is a hypothesis, right? It is just an educated guess. The only problem that they have with us is that we do not proclaim to have a guess. We proclaim to know the truth. And it is our wisdom that frustrates them. See, he said... To the Jews, the cross causes them to stumble because in their own wisdom, then and today, Jews, many of them who are not messianic, are blinded by their own wisdom. They cannot see that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the man that was prophesied in all of the Old Testament. And no matter how you read it to them, no matter how they read it, their eyes are blinded by their own wisdom. He says even to the Greeks, they couldn't accept it because it was just stupid to them. 
Because the greatest thing you could do in life to the Greeks was detach your spirit from your body. So why would a man resurrect himself? So it was foolish to them as well. Paul is trying so hard for us to see how fallible our own wisdom is. is that, so that he says that even if God could do anything foolish or say anything foolish, that his foolishness is still greater than our supposed wisdom. And what God in his right mind would send his own son to bear a cross to have the wrath placed on his back for billions of people who would never believe in him. That's foolishness. But it's the wisdom of God. Look at James 3, 13. Back into our, our text. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Second point I want you to see today, this is very important, and this will be the meat of what we talk about. Human wisdom is the source of all disorder in the world. Human wisdom is the source of all disorder in the world. That's what James is telling us. When he says, who is wise among you? He then gives us the description of wisdom in us. He says that it, one, shows up in our works, and two, it is done so apart from selfish ambition, and it is meek. Where does it show up? In our conduct and our behavior. He then says, if you have any worldly wisdom, it is selfish, it is jealous, and the product of it is disorder and every vile practice. The word that he used for selfish ambition is actually used in the right context as a person in that time who was chasing a political position for their own gain and who would do and say whatever they needed to do to get that position. I want you to hear this. What ails our world is that we are trying to govern it apart from God. That is what ails our world. We are trying to govern it apart from the influence and the wisdom and the power of God. Our nations have become atheistic, which means apart from theism. If we look at our own country, we have people wise in their own ways and in the world trying to make decisions all apart from God. And I hate to break it to you, but it's on both sides of the platform. 
See, on one side, you have one group that is admittedly atheistic, and then on the other side, you have an atheistic group that's pretending not to be. And they're all using their own personal wisdom to gain ground and influence in the world. And on both sides, we think they care about us, but most of them really only care about themselves. And what is killing the relationship that we should have in churches is that we are defining one another by what they believe in a political arena versus what they believe when we sit together in the pews of a church. We are using the thing that the devil has sent to do exactly what he wants it to do, which is to tear apart and rip apart the fabric of Christianity. Because if you're a donkey and I'm an elephant, I simply cannot go the way that you go. Because this is what all Christians would think when they are too dedicated to their political affiliations. I don't understand how you could be a Christian and vote that way. That's what they all say. And what is killing us is that on both sides we have people who are blindly devoted to a political party more than they are devoted to God. And have the nerve on both sides to call themselves good practicing Christians. Let me give you a few examples of worldly wisdom that goes against the context of the Bible. Worldly wisdom says that my body is my own and I'm free to make all the choices I need to make about my body because it is mine. But what does scripture say? Or do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You, oh wait a minute, are not your own. For you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. That means it's not my body, it's God's. And every decision I make about it, I must sincerely seek what most glorifies God. Not what makes my life easier. And in any situation, no matter how difficult the situation, the response should not be, how do I get away from this? It is which of these decisions most glorifies God in my body? See, that's a difficult pill to swallow because the world teaches us, and I know there are people who are disagreeing right now, but that's why I quoted it from Scripture. The world teaches us that we have ownership of us, but the Word teaches us that we don't even belong to us. We belong to Him. And every decision I make about this, I must consult with Him because this is His. It's not mine. There are many people on the other side who claim to be pro-life. And somehow they are staunch advocates of the death penalty or even torturous tactics that they believe apply just as equitably. But what does the Bible say? Matthew 5, 38. 
You have heard, this is Jesus, that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, you turn to him the other also. That doesn't mean turn away. What it means is you offer them the other cheek. That's what that means in context. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, this is the key scripture. What reward do you have? Congratulations is what Jesus is saying. If you love all the people who are perfectly in alignment with you, who have all done you well, who are all members of your same political party, all the people who have done right by you, if you love them, congratulations, you did your job. He says, what reward do you have for that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Why did he say the tax collectors? They were the worst of the worst, but they loved the other tax collectors. They, uh, they loved all the people who were as bad as they were. He says, and if you greet only your brothers, which means only the people of like mind, only the people who agree with you, only the people who see the way you see things, only the people who believe what you believe, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This came up in Bible study last time, and we dove really deeply into it, but I will submit this to you. I am pro-life, which means I am pro-every life. Regardless of what that life looks like, regardless of what that life has done. But more than being pro-life, I am pro-God. And I am for whatever God is for. And I am against whatever God is against. That is not a political position. It is a spiritual one. And we have allowed the world to trick us into believing that that is a political stance. It is not a political stance. It is the firmness of what the word of God has told us. But I will tell you like this. For all my other brothers and sisters who are really, really pro-death penalty who claim to be pro-life, but are also pro-death, I would ask him this. Will you show me the heinousness, the blackness of someone's sin, and I will show you the red blood of Jesus Christ that can purify that person white as snow. So I will never be a champion 
for exterminating anybody and anything because I don't have the responsibility to withhold from them the gospel because they are so bad. My position is we give them all the gospel. And if I believe that the gospel can't save you, then that means the gospel couldn't save me. And the wisdom of God is, regardless of how bad it looks, regardless of what that person did, we don't take the political stance. We take and absorb from the wisdom of God. Again, worldly wisdom says that if you feel like a woman and you're a man, go with it. Or vice versa, because that's natural to you. That's what you naturally felt. You were born this way. First of all, we were all born into sin, shaped in iniquities, the Bible tells us. But then look at you, 1 and 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued what? What were they known for? Rampant what? Rampant homosexuality. It's called, first of all, sexual immorality. That word is porneo. And then it's called an unnatural desire. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Again, there are things in my own wisdom that I say, well, I don't really have an issue with that. In my own carnality, I don't really have a problem with that. But if I'm for what God is for and I'm against what God is against, then I always have to default to what the word of God has said. See, when you have godly wisdom, it creates a balance in us in the Christian life, which says I am for what God is for and I am against what God is against. And apart from that, we are what we are for and for and what we are against. And there is no balance. See, in our own wisdom, and you'll notice this, there is no balance in our own wisdom. You only have extremists. How does a person like Donald Trump become president? Because he's the extreme version of what everybody else is. And the only way that the other side is going to rebut is by putting up the extreme version of what they are. Because apart from God, there is no balance. You only have extremists. And extremists will always say, you're either this or you're either that. And they categorize you by what you believe as opposed to who you believe in. See, the problem with human personal wisdom is if you disagree with my political stance, you're disagreeing with me. Because that's what I believe. It's not what God believes. Even if we hold it up as a Christian view, we take an offense to it because what you believe offends me. But does it offend God? There have been several situations that are presented to us in the world. And God is trying to cause Christians to utilize our God-given wisdom and oftentimes we collapse under the pressure of what the world should say because the world tells us we're black and we should be offended 
or the world tells us we're this and we should be offended. You're a woman, you should feel this way. You are in this position, you should feel this way. I've seen many times where there have been really, really heinous crimes committed against people of our race, people of our culture. And as much as it pains me to see it, I'm not pained because the person is black. I'm pained because it offended God. It offended God. And I want everybody to understand this. No matter the race of the person, no matter, no matter how the person was killed, no matter why the person was killed, if it was done in opposition to God, it's wrong. And there is nothing we can do to justify it. But I will also tell you this. People don't need social justice. They need the gospel. This is going to be painful for y'all to hear, but I want y'all to hear this. If the Bible tells us that the wrath of God will be revealed, Paul told us that the wrath of God is being stored up. What a Christian cannot do is waste their time trying to get the scales of justice to perfectly balance here on earth because it will never happen. And what it will do is cause you to, one, put a bullet in your own head or somebody else's until you see justice here on earth. But that's the hope of heaven. That's the hope of eternity, is that we are never going to see justice here on earth. But at some point, if I really am a Christian, the scales are going to be balanced. But the real Christian is never okay with anybody going to hell. Anybody. The real Christian will fight and claw and share the gospel until that person takes their last breath. Not because you believe in them, but because you believe God is who he said he is. There is nobody who is unsavable. Now, as we get ready to close, James tells us that wisdom from God makes us reasonable. It makes us pure. It makes us gentle. It makes us peaceable. It makes us full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That means what ails our world is a lack of God-centered wisdom. Let's break these down. I'm going to present these in the form of a question. So as I present these, I want you to take inventory of your job, inventory of your marriage, inventory of your relationships, inventory of your theology, and inventory of your political beliefs. Pure is the first one we see. Do I have spiritual integrity and moral sincerity that drives my wisdom, and do I have sincere motives? Ask yourself that question. If I hold a belief up high in my life, are my motives sincere? 
Am I offended at this because it offends God or am I offended at this because it offended me? Peaceable. Do I promote peace or would I rather just be right? Gentle. Am I kind, courteous, soft-spoken, and do I exhibit patient humility, especially with those who disagree with the way I believe? Open to reason. When I have, when I don't have all the facts about a matter, or when I can't quite grasp the other perspective, am I open to hearing people out? Do I wait for the facts, and am I teachable? Full of mercy. When I see people dealing with hardships, whether or not they brought it on themselves, Does mercy permeate my response to them and my interactions with them? Which essentially means whether I love the person, don't know the person, dislike the person, can I still demonstrate mercy to them? The last one is impartiality. Am I consistent in how I deal with and interact with others, whether we share an ethnicity a religion, political belief, gender, or socioeconomic status or not. I hope you, if you didn't write those questions down, you at least took those questions and etched them on your heart and pray that if you feel like you may be deficient in some of those areas, I know I am, that God will give you the characteristics of the wisdom of God from God from heaven, from above. Look, I'll be real. These are not things to easily talk about. These are not things to easily discuss because not just in our culture, but in the culture of the world, it teaches us you have a right You have rights. You are this. You are that. And if this happened to you, it's because of this or because of that. And I'm not disregarding that. Listen, I've served in churches and I saw more rampant racism there than I saw anywhere else. And because of my personal aggravation and my personal frustration, I missed the mark. You want to know how I missed it? I spent so much time mad at those people that I didn't share the gospel. And it took me five years later realizing they didn't need my political belief. They didn't need me to be combative. They needed to be saved by Jesus Christ himself. And I spent so much time mad at the way they treated me that I decided they didn't need the gospel. See, wisdom from God will cause you to endure the hardships that you will endure 
Because it's not you they hate. They hate him. It is the Christ inside of you that they are combating. And the enemy is going to try to deceive you by causing them to attack your color, your gender, your wealth, your race, your culture, and your religion. But it's him they're against. It's not you. Let's pray.